Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Good morning, everyone. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 is where we're going to be um, this morning. We, we're going to spend a whole um, sermon on hence the, the conscience, a concise biblical understanding of human conscience. It's concise because there's not going to be a whole lot of fluff. <laughs> uh, it's um, a biblical understanding because um, that's the only true understanding that we can have. Um, just a few things before we read and pray. What made me stop and um, want to do this is because, one, I'm, I've never preached a sermon on conscience, and we're going to learn in a little bit. It's mentioned 30 times in the New Testament. Two, um, it's concise because as we move through 2 Timothy, we're going to go back to what we learn um, this morning, I think, time and time again. But, but one of the main reasons is I was messing around on my iPhone and um, going through some stuff on YouTube, and I came across this sermon that had 6 million views and the title of it was um, Understanding How to Hear the Voice of God. So the first thing I thought to myself was, one, is that a thing in the New Testament? Which means, there, is there any apostolic text that tells us how to uh, hear the voice of God? And the answer to that would be no. So there's no time when Paul or Peter or John said, this is how you hear the voice of God. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to some of this. And so it started out, with saying that you can't have a relationship with God if you can't hear him. And then I said, that's not true. Because you can't have a relationship with God except by faith in Jesus Christ. And then, it, then he said, God wants to speak to you. And then I began to think as if God was somehow depending on me to do something to make that happen. And so in that case, God sounded more human to me than divine. And so I was thinking about the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, he, he wasn't doing anything other than going the wrong way, and God got in front of him and stopped him. He didn't ask God to stop him. He didn't say or do anything. God just got in front of him. And he would say uh, later on in 1 Timothy that he's the typical, the type of uh, conversion. So um, when I was listening to it, I thought, this bothers me bothers my conscience. <laughs> and so we're going to talk about conscience, and um, it felt like it was some kind of like in-house, you know, code, but then I kept thinking of all the millions of people who just need something from God, and, and to throw it all on, on their lap, you know, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, um, you know, by minute 47, I was ready to in a Christian way, hurt somebody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So this is the verse. <laughs> I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Okay, so let's, let's pray and ask God for help. It, we're we're going to need it. Father, all that is needed at this moment for both the listener and the speaker, you alone can supply. The, the more feeble we are, God, the more fit we are, we are able to be helped. 
but you know sometimes our feebleness, it frightens us. So, Father, in the deepest humility that I'm able to give you, with, with a particular awareness of need this morning that, that frankly hurts, we ask for your help. We ask for your love, your stability, soundness of mind, the ability to focus right now in this room as it is, as we learn about the conscience that you created, because we want to see what your word says about the conscience that you created. We want to understand it, and we definitely, God, we want to live in light of it. So would you please have mercy on us, God, beginning with myself, and open the eyes of our hearts, God. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. And by the way, one of the things that bothered me about this sermon, he didn't even go to 1 John 4 about testing the spirits, even though he would have taken that out of context, because it's, it's not like, well, anyway, you have to look at John 4, but that's for another time. Okay, so we're three sermons into 2 Timothy, and we know enough to know that Paul was writing Timothy because Paul's life was ending. So he was writing to support Timothy in the work of the gospel in the local church, specifically for Timothy in Ephesus. And, and so Paul had a clear understanding given to him from the risen Christ about what his church, the risen Christ church, should be. And Paul is passing on that clear understanding to Timothy. So no church is ever left in the mystery of like what we should be about and what should we, what should we do. However, as I said, our focus this morning is on that phrase, clear conscience. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, okay, serving God with that clear conscience. In light of that, I'm going to start by asking you a series of questions, All right? Number one, is your conscience always right? Should you ever go against your conscience? Is it ever wise to reteach your conscience? Is it ever wise to silence it? Are you able to do that? How should you relate to other people's conscience? For example, if someone else's conscience allows them to do something and yours does not, how do you relate to such a person? Is conscience some type of inner voice of God? If it's not, do you think, and this is asking you the question, do you think you ever confuse your own conscience with God the Holy Spirit's leading? How can you have a clear conscience? What if a person only goes with their conscience, right? So it's kind of like um, my kind of like my gut is telling me here, and that's the typical way they go. They go with their gut. And how does the work of Christ on the cross, the gospel, how does it affect your conscience? Now, every one of those questions are important. There's probably more, but those are important for a lot of reasons, but I need you to think with me. Right now, the church in America, I would say that a sermon like this is hyper-necessary for this, for this reason. It's not my opinion. One, we have a Christian culture that has a shockingly low understanding of basic theology. Every survey, survey out there from every denomination just points that out. It's, it's crazy. With as much information that we have and access to it, the, 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 the knowledge level of basic Christianity is shockingly low. And as a result, we have consciences that are untrained, which could lead people to, to uh, either, either a low view of themselves or a very high view of themselves and a high view of their own belief system, all the while having a very low understanding of, of basic theology. 
So I've quoted to you this before, but G.K. Chesterton was right. Years ago, 20th century years ago, a person was meant to be doubtful about themselves, but undoubting about the truth. This has been reversed. Nowadays, the part of a person that they do assert is exactly the part that they ought not to assert themselves. The part they doubt is exactly the part they ought not to doubt. And that, he said, the divine reason or truth. For example, just bear with me. Consider in the last three years, in light of the different responses from Christianity during the pandemic, the different responses to mandates, masks, vaccines, not meeting together, and the different responses by Christians to, to those different responses. Think about human rights issues. Think about parenting techniques. Think about political preferences. Or even think about this, what a church should be like. But it's more than that. Think about issues of inner peace and mental health issues. People can be helped. I've said this more in recent history than I've ever... You need to strengthen your conscience. And when I say that to my Christian friends... A typical response, not always, but a typical response is, what do you mean by that? So to answer the question, what is conscience, we have to first to define what conscience is. It's point three on our, on our um, bulletin, our worship folder. We're going to get to it more extensively, but I thought it, it would kind of help because we're going we're to go through a lot of scriptures in a moment. So if I sent you a text and said, what is conscience? How would you reply? And, and you know, maybe could you reply? It's important because our conscience has deep implications on how we live and how we think. I would even say life-altering, life-liberating, or holding a life in bondage, or causing serious pain to ourselves, or serious pain to others. And to be a church unsure of what conscience is, or if our conscience even matters at all, that would be so unhealthy for us. So let's define the word a little bit, and then later on we'll get a very a more extensive definition. Okay, so we're going to learn from God's word um, here in a second. There are thirty times in the New Testament the word conscience is used. The word is translated synedesis, and and what it means is co knowledge. It's it's a it's a um, well it's what is it? it's I'm going to say it wrong. It's um, can't think of the word. Now my conscience is condemning me. No, it's kidding. It means our knowledge, co-knowledge. It's our knowledge of ourselves alongside the highest authority, the highest knowledge that we personally have. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Co-knowledge. It means it's our knowledge of ourselves, how we understand ourselves, alongside the highest knowledge we personally have of the truth, right? So the highest knowledge that we personally have of the truth. Therefore, your conscience is precisely that. It is your conscience. It's, it's personal, and it's based on your individual highest moral standard. And this is one of the few words in the New Testament that doesn't have an Old Testament equivalent. The closest word in the Old Testament would be the word for heart, let me just give you one example. David, Psalm 51.10, he asked God for a clean heart. Lief is the word. And what he wanted from God, because of all his sin, he wanted God to clean his conscience. But our focus is on the New Testament. And so what we're going to find out is there are 30 times in, that the word is used. It's used twice in Acts. 
20 times in Paul's letters, five times in Hebrews, and three times in, in uh, 1 Peter. And we're going to move through them quickly. And what I want you to do, if you would, please, keep an eye out for the words that occur alongside the word conscience. They're going to be marked out for you for this reason, okay? So let's say you're trying to figure out what the word door means. And what you could do is you could look at all these sentences that have the word door in it, and, and you would say, okay, what are the verbs that are kind of next to the word door? So like lock, knock, shut, slam, kick, paint, wipe. And as you gather those words, it will help you understand the word door better as you study it in the context. And we're going to do the same thing here. We're going to look at the very words that are around the word conscience, and it's going to help us understand the word better. Kind of like, what can it be or what can it do? Okay, so the first two are in Acts. This is Acts chapter 23, verse 1. They should be behind me. Are they? There they are. I see them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all. Okay, what kind of conscience? Good conscience. Okay, this means the conscience can be good. That was important enough for Paul to say before he left the church there. Number two, Acts chapter 24, verse 16. So I always take pains, great effort to have what kind of conscience? A clear conscience toward whom? Both God and man. Okay, so the conscience is kind of worked. Now, the 20 times from Paul, Paul's letter, and this is embarrassing because three times it's mentioned in Romans, and we just got through working through Romans, and I didn't teach about the conscience one time, so my conscience condemned me, and rightly so. Romans chapter 2, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also, what's it doing? Bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even uh, excuse them. And there's the thought process. Accuse or excuse. Romans 9.1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience, what is it doing? It bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Number five, Romans 13.5. And, and we're talking here about governing authorities. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath to those governing authorities, but also for the sake of conscience. So we can do things for the sake of our conscience. Number six, 1 Corinthians 8, 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former associations with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience, what can it be here? Being weak. We're talking about Christians and being weak. And it's described as defiled. All right. So that means our conscience can be weak, defiled or, or corrupt. Three verses later, verse 10, number seven. For if anyone sees you, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will they not be encouraged if their conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Number eight, 1 Corinthians eight twelve. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding, okay, that's a new one, wounding their conscience so we can wound someone else's conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So we can hurt other people's conscience by our behavior, our actions. Number nine, 1 Corinthians 10, 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on what? The ground of conscience. Number 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner 
and you are disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. <laughs> Number 11, 1 Corinthians 10, 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Number 12, this is 12 and 13 actually, 1 Corinthians 10, 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? That's helpful. Our, our conscience is not to be determined, controlled, governed by someone else's conscience. Not always, not in that context. Number 14, 2 Corinthians 1, 2. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. So, so our conscience can testify that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and, and supremely so toward you. So there it is again, before God and before human beings. 15, 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But, if we, have re- but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's a beautiful way to be able to exist, isn't it? Number 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Okay, so the deepest part of you. Now, the next six are from the pastoral epistles, which, if you think about it, it's very telling. Because so much of pastoral ministry is a question of motive, of intent. I mean, why am I here right now doing this? Why, why, why did I, if you would, stay? And especially, it's so easy. I mean, I don't know how you cannot help it. Other people can question your motive. And especially as a pastor who's been charged with the spiritual care of people. So 1 Timothy 1, 5, number 17, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So again, our conscience can be good. Number 18, 1 Timothy 1, 19, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Number 19, 1 Timothy 3, 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's interesting, isn't it? That's like, that's worth a sermon. <laughs> well, number 20, 1 Timothy 4, 2, through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. And that's the only time in the New Testament that word seared is used. It's, it's like a hot iron which shuts out the conscience. Okay. Number 21, 2 Timothy 1, 3, <laughs> I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did how with a clear conscience. Number 22, Titus 1.5, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, both, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. I mean, that's, that's super interesting how you look at things. Now, those are pastoral epistles. Here's the Hebrew text. This is Hebrews 9.9, number 23. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear or perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So the conscience needs to be perfected. It's not perfected as it is, 
And the old covenant couldn't do it, but the new covenant, as we'll find out later on, can and did. Number 24, Hebrews 9, 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works? That's a big one. It tells you that your conscience is still religious and it's willing to do all kinds of good things, but those good things cannot cleanse it. That's important. Number 25, Hebrews 10.2. Otherwise, they would have not stopped being offered. That's the continual Old Covenant sacrifices. Otherwise, they would not have been stopped being offered for the worshiper would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Now, that's a little different. It's two times. We're going to get to the other one in a moment. That means like an awareness of our mindfulness of. So you have an awareness of sin, a mindfulness of sin. Number 26, Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, cleansed, to cleanse us from what kind of conscience? A guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water. Last run from Hebrews, number 27. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. Okay. And then the final three are in 1 Peter. So you, the bulk of them are from Paul. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews, but if Paul did write Hebrews, then the bulk of them is from Paul. Number 28, 1 Peter 2, 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscience, conscious, and that's the idea, they're aware of God. And that's the second time that word means awareness of or, or conscious, conscious of. Okay, the last two, 1 Peter 3.16, keeping a, what kind of, a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. That's a great one. And then the final one, 1 Peter 3.21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's all 30 references. If you were behind in your Bible reading this week, I caught you up, so you can thank me later. So, what do you do with all this? Well, the first thing you do is is pretty simple. You take all that data, and you begin to build an understanding from the Bible uh, of what conscience is. So, we're getting some questions. You can see them in the the worship folder. We're going to just fly through them as best as we can. I'm going to try my hardest, and we're going to do that. So, the first one is, what can the conscience be? Okay, second, what can the conscience do? But first, what can the conscience be? Well, this is from the scriptures that we read. There's a positive thing that the conscience can be and a negative. Positive in two ways. The conscience can be good, blameless, clear, clean, pure. It's the idea of you can see right through it to the person. So they're being truly who they are. And the second, the conscience can be perfected. So it it needs to be cleaned or cleared, sprinkled clean, perfected, purified, washed, purged. Okay, those are the positive ways God's word describes what the conscience can be. Here are the negative ways, and there's six of them. The conscience can be weak. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you in a descending order. So the worst thing about a conscience is not that it's weak. We're going to get to the last one, but that's a negative thing. It can be weak. 
The conscience can be defiled. That's corrupt, polluted. It's impaired. The conscience can be wounded. The conscience can be emboldened to sin. Your conscience can be evil, guilty. The conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. And that final phrase, seared as with a hot iron, that's 1 Timothy 4, 2. It describes an, a dead conscience. It's still a conscience, but it's dead. Listen to what one commentary says about this. A weak conscience is not the same as a seared conscience. A seared conscience becomes inactive, silent, rarely accusing, and insensitive, indifferent to sin, indifferent to others. That's a seared conscience. But a weak conscience is usually hypersensitive and overactive about issues that are not sin. And we learn from Romans 14 and 15 and, and later on in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 that there are things that are gray. There are gray areas in our life. And usually a person with a weak conscience thinks it's just black and white. Everything's black and white. And so things happen that don't agree with them and their conscience just, just is weak and then it just cripples them. So I want you to see there's a difference. There's a spectrum. Okay, that's number one. What can the conscience be? Number two, what can the conscience do? So, so we learned three actions. The conscience can bear witness or confirm that which bears witness to. So remember Paul in Romans 9.1, I'm telling you the truth, he said. My conscience is, is telling me that I'm, I'm telling you the truth. It's, it's not telling me that I'm lying to you. So when I tell you that I wish that I could switch places with the Israelites and, and, and they could be saved and I couldn't be it, I mean that if it was possible. So in other words, he's not trying to get you to say, oh, Paul, he's got so much love in him. And he wants to hear you say, oh, Paul has so much love in him. He's not doing that. He means what he says. So his conscience is clear. Okay, so what can the conscience do? That conscience can bear witness or confirm that which bears witness to you too or to you. Number two, the conscience can lead you to act in a certain way. Now, this is really important. If it's healthy, your conscience can lead you, for example, Romans 13, 1, it can lead you to submit to the governing authorities. Or 1 Corinthians, uh, 1, no, 1 Corinthians 10. It can lead you, this is important, it can lead you to not ask where that meat came from, right? So you're at your friend's house, he might be a pagan, you're not going to ask him where that meat came from. So a healthy conscience will help you ask no questions at all about secondary issues. You won't need to ask the questions that are potentially volatile and explosive. Or it can lead you not to eat meat that someone told you was sacrificed to idols. So the conscience then can lead you. Now here's what I wonder. Here's where I wonder if, if we often get confused with the Spirit's leading and the conscience leading. Okay? Think about this. Here's where I would ask you to consider that much-used phrase, the Lord was leading me to, or the Lord was leading me to do X, when it could be simply your own conscience. Now, this is a quote from Graham Goldsworthy. He's, a, he's trusted in my mind. It's from a book, Gospel and Wisdom, and listen to what he writes. Every case of special guidance given to individuals in the Bible has to do with that person's place in the outworking of God's saving purposes. In other words, redemptive history, gospel. He goes on. 
There are no instances in the Bible in which God gives special and specific guidance to the ordinary believing Israelite or Christian in the details of their personal existence. That's big. That's huge. So I'm not saying that God can't do that, but what I am saying is know the difference between the spirit and your own conscience. Number three, the conscience can judge or determine another person's freedom. Right, and that's concise. You put it all together, that's what the conscience can be. Okay, that's, that's what the conscience, excuse me, can, can do. It can bear witness. It can confirm that which bears witness to. The conscience can lead you to act in a certain way. And the conscience can judge or determine another person's freedom. All right, that's our second point. Okay, then number three, then what is a conscience? Define it. Okay, we, we kind of did that already. The, the, the Greek word is sunde, sunde, uh, sunedesis, sorry, co-knowledge. It's, it's your knowledge of yourself. It's your honest knowledge of yourself, along with the highest knowledge that you personally hold of the truth. Okay, so that's different. Because that means everybody's conscience is going to be different because everyone has a different level of understanding of truth. So the standard you know, Greek dictionary that I have, this is, what it, this is the definition. The inward faculty that distinguishes right from wrong. Okay, that's basic. But you go on to what we said, your conscience is your conscience. It's yours. It's your personal awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. Okay, so again, that's precisely the conscience. It's your conscience, and it's your personal understanding based upon your individual moral standards, which means this. Your conscience is not infallible. God's word is, but your conscience is not. Your conscience is not the source of revelation about what is ultimately right and what is ultimately wrong. Its role is not to teach us morality, it doesn't teach us ethics, but what it does do, it holds us to, it holds us accountable to the highest standard of right and wrong that we know. That's going to be important later on. So the conscience is not infallible. The conscience can be informed by, by tradition, just as well as truth, which it means, again, the standard that it holds are not necessarily always biblical ones. Your conscience can condemn you about something that is untruthful. That's what I'm trying to say. Our conscience then untrained, okay, can needlessly condemn us in areas where there is no biblical issue at all. The debatable matters, secondary issues, or it can make you, an untrained conscience can make you impinge your conscience on another person's conscience or even on a whole congregation something that is unbiblical and it's just personal to you. Which, again, if you have a large personality, if you have a large personality and a large sense of self, but your conscience is corrupt, you're dangerous. You're dangerous. But also, we can, we can try to hold ourselves to okay, having a weak conscience, the very thing that God says from His Word that you need to be released from. All those secondary issues that you think are primary issues. Okay? But on the other end of that stick, a trained conscience can, can 
awaken us to our sin. I'm going to give you one example. I think it's a good one. It's Old Testament, but I think it's going to help. You need to consider King David. Remember how long King David went without repenting to God about his sin with Bathsheba? Right? So think about that. He had a man killed because of his lust. But what happens? The prophet Nathan, sent by God, preached the word of God, right? The word of God, which, which is not in, not, uh, which is perfect. So God sent through Nathan a word, a specific word to David. And David, having indulged in his sin for so long, unrepented about it, has a defiled conscience at that point. And in the middle of the sermon, think of this. In the middle of the sermon, he kind of interrupts Nathan. Remember the story? There was this guy and he had one sheep and there was a guy who had a bazillion sheep. And David's like, this is 2 Samuel 12, 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did that must die. <laughs> and, and let's just say you didn't know better and you heard David say that. What would you say about David? Oh, he's got some zeal. He's really zealous. No, David has a corrupt conscience. Defiled. Weak. Now, I don't mean to be crude, but that sort of thing happens all the time in, in America with popular preachers. They, they, they say, like, you shouldn't do X, you shouldn't do X, you shouldn't do X. And people are like, yeah, that's right, they shouldn't do X. And then come to find out, so many of them are doing what? They're doing X. And they have to apologize, and they have to step down. You see how easy that works unfortunately. And it was not until Nathan gave the truth, David, you are that man, a direct word from God to, to David's conscience, that David's conscience, thank God, was awakened. And what does he do? He repents. The conscience then, and this is very helpful, the conscience is aware of all our secret thoughts, all our true motives, and therefore, it is more accurate and it is more formidable witness in the soul's courtroom than any external observer. Do you understand what that means? Your conscience knows more about you and your secret thoughts and you, your true motives than any other human being on this planet. That's why your conscience is so important. Now, six truths quickly to underpin your, your conscience, as in your, your understanding of right and wrong, just to help us with the definition. Number one, everyone has a conscience. You can be a Christian, you can be a non-Christian. If you're born, you have a conscience. It's what it means to be human. Number two, the conscience is internal. It's what you believe is right and what you believe is wrong. It is your conscience. Number three, the conscience is independent. That's why that's why against your desires, your conscience can plague you with guilt when you wish it would stop, right? You do something wrong and your conscience is, is right about it. It will plague you until you deal with it unless your conscience is seared. Number four, the conscience produces different results for different people based on different moral standards. That's important because we don't all have the same moral standards in the big things, of course, but not in the minute things. So that's why the definition, it's your conscience, it's so important. It's what you believe is right and wrong. So if you think it's right and it's wrong, that's what you believe. But that's not necessarily what is wrong, right and wrong 
and not necessarily what other people think is right and wrong. I mean, just this comes to mind, I, along, not here, but in Tennessee, I preached a sermon and I quoted from a movie and it was a rated R movie and, I was, and the guy said, what are you doing watching radio, rated R movies? Right? There was a thing there. And I said, how do you know I was quoting from a rated R movie? Because <laughs> he watched it too. <sighs> so you might have a clear conscience about an issue when it's actually an evil conscience. Because your conscience is misinformed and misguided. So, so what moral standard should your conscience be based on? Luther said it perfectly. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. That's it. He nailed it. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. Number five, your conscience can change because your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong at any given point. Right? So it can change because you learn something from the scriptures that you didn't know before. So at one point in your life, you thought that was wrong, but now you understand that it's neutral or it's not wrong or vice versa. How does that happen? Because your conscience can change. Your conscience may change because of becoming more hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, personally, I've seen this happen as people, Christians grow older. And I, I, you, know, you just get harder about things. Or it could change for the good because your life is more conformed to the word of God or your conscience is. Number six, finally, your conscience functions as a monitor, a witness, a judge, and a guide. So as a monitor, it monitors how you conform to the moral standards that you have. As a witness, your conscience can testify, Paul said that, to how you conform to those moral standards. As a judge, your conscience judges you for how you conform to those standards, and then it can make you feel guilt and pain. Or it can make you feel good that you've accomplished or you've, you've done the right thing. And finally, as a guide, it guides you to help you conform to those standards that you hold. So, so the conscience warns us before we do wrong. Positively, it urges you to do right. If you like, the conscience is your moral awareness, your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Okay, there, we define the word. So, so, what, so what, the final point. But this is what we have to do. Ask yourself, everything that we just went through in the 30 plus minutes, is it, does it affect your life at all? And, and I would say, yes, it does. And I would also say that every Christian's conscience has to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It, it's the continual removal of our fallen nature to fall under the headship of Jesus Christ through his word. Training our conscience to match God's truth. And I want to tell you from personal experience, it's very liberating. It's very liberating. So our conscience can be adjusted. We may think something is a matter of conscience, but it's wrong. We may think that it's God, but it's really only us. Takes us then to our final point, what the cross of Christ does for a conscience. Well, <laughs> this is great, and it's perfect for communion. When you understand how holy God is, and when your conscience is good, you understand how sinful you are compared not to each other, but to that holy God, your conscience will rightly attack you for sinning against God. That's correct. Your conscience, if it's alive, if it's good, if it's clear, it should be attacking you when you're sinning. Our conscience is a right monitor. 
and it testifies to us that we've sinned. Now, think. Remember when we learned in John 16 about the role of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is our advocate. The Holy Spirit does not bring conviction to us of our sin. There's no place in the New Testament that it says that. But a healthy conscience will do that. A bad conscience is a barrier between us and God. A good, healthy, clear conscience is not. So here we are again. A person may think that they are right, but they are wrong. And as a result of a defiled, unkept, corrupt conscience, untrained conscience, we'll say in a certain area, when that happens, and it happens to all of us, when they're aware of that, that's when they become aware in a sense that they need a Savior. And when a person becomes aware that they need a Savior, Christian or not, three things can happen, okay? Number one, when they're aware that they need a Savior, either it can lead them to despair or it can lead them to, to reject their conscience and just further defiling it, further corrupting it, dead, deaden it. Or it could lead you to praising God for His Son, Jesus Christ, through the gospel and His efficient work on the cross. Now, did I just jam that in there? No, I did not. How can that lead you to praise? Well, let's just think. Our conscience rightly attacks us for, for being evil, and we're guilty. But because of Jesus' death on the cross and that ultimate unblemished sacrifice, two ways this hap- helps us. Number one, this is, this is Hebrews 9.14. Jesus, his blood, his death on the cross, will purify our or cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. All right. So again, contrast that with the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And the gifts and the sacrifices that God's people offered continually, it did not do anything with their conscience. It did not quiet it, clear it, clean it, because it was not that sacrifices, those sacrifices were not able to do what Jesus' death did and clean the conscience completely. But under the new covenant, we have, this is Hebrews 13, 18, we, it calls it, we can have a clear conscience. So a good, clear conscience is not that we have perfect behavior. That's so important. A good, clear, healthy conscience is not that we have perfect behavior. It's that we know we do not have perfect behavior and we apply the gospel to it. Now, now think with me. What did Paul say about himself publicly in the letters? This is why Paul, again and again, clear conscience, good conscience, clear conscience. He would say he's the least of the least of all the apostles. He would say he's the least of the least of all the saints. And he would say he's the chief or the worst of all sinners. Now, you take that and put them to the side, and you know nothing about the gospel, and you're a real religious person, you would say, what are you doing being an apostle? But he understands. A good, clear conscience is not that we have perfect behavior. It's that we have applied the gospel to that conscience. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose what? All their guilty stains. That is the new covenant song. That's ours to enjoy. Or what about the song before the throne of God above? Exchange the word Satan with conscience. Okay, when Satan tempts me to despair, when conscience tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
Okay, what do you do? You upward I look and see him there. This is Jesus who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. Okay, that's the first benefit of the cross. The second benefit of the cross is this. This is Hebrews 10.22. We can draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Okay, why? This is the rest of it. Because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, we can draw near to God with a full assurance. That's a good conscience. You would say, thank you, Father, for that. So when Paul said he serves God, verse 3, with a clear conscience, he is not saying that he did everything right. He's simply saying this, and this is where we're going to end, that my conscience is held captive to the word of God. That's all he's saying. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. I am not perfect, far, far from it. But the death of Jesus Christ has dealt with that. So that is what the conscience is, and that is what the conscience, and that is why, if you would, it matters. It matters. Okay. Thank you for your attention. I bet that was hard to listen to, but I hope it was helpful. Let, let's pray. Now, Father, in a moment, we're going we're to take communion. And every Christian in here has the privilege of going to this table Seating, being seated, if you would, at this table, and we know that we don't deserve it. And we know that if our conscience was left alone, it would condemn us. We thank you, Father, that we have someone greater than our conscience. We have the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross to cleanse our conscience and to clear it up. Please, God, use this sermon to help us. It's helped me. I pray that it helps everyone else. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.